as um, some of you may know, sermon preparation is very difficult and takes a lot of time for uh, just hard work. But I took solace in the fact that at least I don't have to follow through uh, Steve's footsteps and do Leviticus. So it could be worse today. <laughs> um, but please open your Bibles to Micah 6. Today is the start of what we call Holy Week or Passion Week. Um, I would just encourage you guys today to try to be intentional. Think of how you could maybe as families or individuals, uh, how you could, what you could do to make this week uh, a a week of, of traditions, a week of fun, a week of remembrance of that. You know, we spend so much time in Christmas building up and there's Advent and there's this build up and Easter, you know, all we do is we talk next Sunday on Resurrection Sunday, well, the story's already over. You know, the, we've missed the, the drama and the, the climax and the building up. And so I would just encourage you guys to, to think through that. In fact, in small group last week, I was encouraged by my small group and one important person in my small group to uh, preach on Palm Sunday. But we're doing Micah, and, but there are a couple connections I think you'll, you'll see. So let me pray and we'll get started. Lord, it is an amazing thing that you speak to us in your word. And you speak to us when your word is proclaimed. And so, um, Lord, I pray that as we're here, that I would decrease and you would increase. If there's anything that would cause... Uh, my brothers and sisters, to stumble or to become confused, Lord, that you would um, hold it back from me, that you would make clear what you would have me to say so that you would um, draw us to a right relationship with you and with others in this time. We pray in your name. Amen. We'll turn to Micah 6. And Micah 6, as many of you know, is... Um, an incredibly famous part of the Bible, Micah 6.8. If any of you, are, if you've been a Christian for a long time or for some time, you know that Micah 6.8 is often quoted. There's, I think, the tendency, you know, the, this Bible is 66 books, uh, over 1,100 chapters, tens of thousands of verses, and there's the 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 propensity, or people want to just kind of boil things down. What is, you know, what is what is how do you wrap this Bible up in a, in a verse or a chapter or, or how do you, what do you do? And um, so oftentimes Micah 6.8 is quoted. But I think the, the potential danger in just boiling it down is you just quote that verse and oftentimes it's not understood in its, in its overall context. And so I thought about just preaching on Micah 6.8 or in Micah 1 verse 8, but I think it's important that we do the entire chapter of Micah 6 so that you understand and we see the context of verse 8. And I think you'll see that that will be beneficial. Just maybe one little humorous story to illustrate that. Um, as many of you know, some of my children are homeschooled, and, but one day a week they go to a kind of a consortium. So there's all these other homeschool families. And a couple years ago, they were all the, the fam- one of the classes did the body. And so, you know, they would cut, cut the these paper 
organs of the body. So there would be a spleen and the pancreas, and they'd color them, and they'd tape them all on this um, like four-foot body. So it was this life-size or beyond life-size for some of the kids. And, um, and they would tape them, and you know, so they would learn about uh, the body. Well, after one of, the, these, after one of this, uh, this day, Maggie got a text and it said, did anybody take Carl's body home? <laughs> and, well, out of context, if I would have come home and just read that, obviously that would have been a very troubling text for me to read. But in context, you obviously see that it makes sense that you aren't really taking Carl's body home. So let me read Micah 6.8 and I... Um, so we can understand Micah 6, 8. It starts in verse 1. It says this. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring fountains of the, the earth. For the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak the king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord cries in the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat and not be satisfied, and there you shall hunger. There shall be a hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and, you shall, and what you preserve will, I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes and not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Amri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Well, just as a recap, we're going on three years here of the Micah 6. Micah, Micah is speaking to uh, the divided kingdom, mainly in uh, the southern two tribes of Judah. There's the northern, two, the northern ten tribes of Israel that has already been taken captive. And there's these la- the last two tribes in Judah that the Assyrians are on their way. And 
but the people and these, these Israelites are in comfort and living, and they're they're not treating their their neighbors well, as we'll see at the end of this verse, as, as we just read. And Micah has some clear words for them. And if you remember, there's three sections in Micah. One and two starts with, "Hear, my people, hear you peoples, all of you." And then in verses chapters three through five, again he says, "Hear you heads of Jacob." And now we start this third and last section of Micah, where he says, hear what the Lord says. And he starts in this, like a court setting. Here is Micah coming before the people. And he's speaking on behalf of the Lord, and the Lord says, arise, I will plead my case before the mountains. These enduring foundations. um, I think it's important if you read through Micah over and over and over, as I have in the last couple years, He mentions mountains over and over and over. Um, And he talks about these mountains that have been there before the existence of humans, of mankind. And And so he calls to these mountains to hear and to listen to the indictment that he has. His pleading complaint. But then in verse 3, he says this, he is, has a complaint against these people, but it is a pleading complaint. He says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? Maybe some of you have, <clears throat> if you are at home with your kids all day, some of you may send a text or send a voicemail to one of, uh, if you have a husband or a wife who is working, that says, Your son is <laughs> disobedient, disrespectful, and a menace to the neighborhood. Um, as maybe some of you here have gotten. But that's not what the Lord says. He says, Oh, my people, what have I done? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And then he talks about the three, just brings up three ways in which he has acted, in which he, people may know his righteous acts. And the first, as many of you know, is here in verse 4. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you, you were redeemed. You were bought with a price. You were delivered. And if it, that wasn't enough, I gave you leadership. For I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And the second way, he says again, notice he says, O my people, remember. And see, here is the perfect connection to Palm Sunday. I can't take credit for this one. This is all thanks to Tim Iverson. But he talks about Balaam here in verse 5. And if you know anything about Balaam, all the kids' stories, he rode on a donkey, right? In Palm Sunday, Jesus rode on a donkey. See the connection? All right. Um, Again, I can't take credit for that one. But as I read through this, Micah 6, I kind of got nervous because Balaam is one of those stories that I loved to read, but never made any sense to me. I don't know, there's a number of questions that come up. And here's the cliff notes of, of Balak and Balaam. So after the Lord had delivered the nation of, of Israel out of Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea and they've had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, they're, they've now come to the, to the edge of the Jordan River and they're about ready to go into the Promised Land. And they're in the country of Moab. And in the land of Moab... And the king is Balak, the king Balak. And he is terrified. In Numbers 22, 
through 24 is the story. And he is terrified, and so he goes to Balaam because he says, whoever you bless is blessed, but whoever you curse is cursed. So I want you to curse these people, to curse these Israelite people that are in my land. And so Balak sends a contingent to Balaam and says, will you do this? And so so Balaam asks the Lord, and the Lord speaks to him very clearly, and he says, do not go. I've blessed these people. So the contingent goes back to Balaam, or Balak, and Balak listens to this, and so he sends a greater contingent. And he says, well, maybe I'll give him more riches and promise him more things. He sends another contingent to Balaam. And Balaam says, well, bad news. The Lord told me, no, I, I can't curse these people, but good news, I'll ask again. So he asks again, and the Lord says, Go. So this part of the story, many of you know in all the children's stories, you know, he goes riding on a donkey and three times the, the donkey turns away and then there's the angel of the Lord. But what happens after this is he goes and he, they come to an, a part and they see just a little part of the Israelites. And so God, or Balaam goes over and he, Balaam offers a sacrifice and... Balaam pronounces his first oracle, and he says, on behalf of God, he says, I can only speak what God says to speak. So as he does that, he says, these people will not be cursed. So Balak says, that's not what I told you to do. He said, I told you to only curse these people. Don't bless these people. So he goes somewhere else. And so they go to another part, and they look down. He offers sacrifices again. And, he's, and Balaam says, I will only speak what God tells me to speak. And again, he says, not only does he, will I not curse these people, but I'm going to bless these people. I'm going to bless these Israelites. They'll be like a lion and they'll devour their prey. And Balak says, no, no, no. Well, if, you, at least, if you're not going to curse them, at least just don't bless them. So they go to another place and they see all of the Israelites. And then this time, there's Balaam pronounces his third oracle and his fourth oracle. And not only does he bless the Israelites, but he curses all the other people. And specifically, he curses Moab and the king of Moab. But this story never made sense to me. I mean, in one context, I think it's, it's important we, we look at this because why did, Baal, why did God tell Balaam first not to go and then said go? And then, as he's going, it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against him. So why is, if he's going, why is the Lord's anger kindled against him and he sends an angel to kill him? If he says, if you go, were to go past this point, if you cross the line, my angel of the Lord is going to kill you or would have killed you. But then, I mean, not only that, but why, as you read the story, why there's so many times where the angel of the Lord just comes and he wipes out people. There's no, like, if you cross this line or, why did he just not wipe out Balaam. Or when he spoke to the angel of the Lord, why did the angel just not send Balaam back? Say, just go back. Because I'm clearly very angry that that you're you're on this road. Why why did Balaam just not get sent back? Well, I think the answer is in Deuteronomy 23.5. It says this, But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you 
because the Lord your God loves you. Do you see what he's doing? What, what the, the main point of that story is? The main point of that story is just not that Balaam had to go back. The story was that God wanted to bless his people. And the Lord was working in a way to achieve his purpose even through the sinful actions of those people. He wanted to make it very clear that, hey, Balaam, you aren't obeying me. You're disobeying me. You're being sinful. But I'm working in a way that if he would have just sent him back or if he would have killed him or if he just would have stayed home, that he wouldn't have blessed his people. I wrote this down. It says, God twisted the malicious plans of a wicked man, that being Balaam, Balak, and the defiant man who disobeyed God's clear direction, that would be Balaam, to work in his incomprehensible way, to bless his people and his people who were rebellious and wayward toward him. And God says, is that boring to you? Not only did I take this curse and I turned it into a blessing for you, not only did I get you out of Egypt, I provided redemption for you, I delivered you, I provided leadership for you, I protected you. Is that boring for you? Oh, what else did I do? In verse, the end of verse 5, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? This recounts the story right after this. Of There's this cliffhanger this cliff cliffhanger chapter, Numbers 3, if you remember. And the Lord said, told the people that as soon as the priests are, they're about ready to cross the Jordan River, but they're not going to take a bridge. They're going to go a unique way. That he says, hearkening back to the, the crossing of the Red Sea, says when your priests who have the Ark of the Covenant, when they step foot on the Jordan River, it's going to part and you're going to go through. And if you remember this, the chapter, there's kind of this build up, build up, build up, and then there's the cliffhanger. But it happens just as the Lord says. And we see that it all happens so that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And the Lord says, have I wearied you? Are those things that I've done want to make you take a nap? Is that boring to you? You know, I think it's interesting to see what, also what happened after each of these Many of you know after they went out of Egypt, there was grumbling and complaining. They didn't have water, so God gave them water. They didn't have food, and so they grumbled, and God gave them manna. Do you know what happens after the story of Balaam? Right after this story, after God delivered the people from the king of Moab and Balaam, it basically says God, Balak wants to kill Balaam but they both go their separate ways. We don't know to any extent that that the Israelites know what's going on. So God is working in an incredible way that the Israelites have no idea what's going on. And what do they do? Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. And the people began to whore after the daughters of Moab, this country of Moab. They whored after the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods, so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So these people that wanted to curse them, the Lord turned this curse into a blessing. They didn't even understand what God is doing. He's working in the background. And what do they do? They voluntarily go after the daughters of Moab. 
and sacrifice to their gods while God is doing a great work. So it is, God is working in many ways that we don't even understand. In that way, Palm Sunday is a perfect example. You know, God was, Jesus, when he came, he was incredibly wise. Wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. And what he did, he orchestrated the perfect situation for him to go into Jerusalem to fulfill all the prophecies of the Mosaic prophecies in the Old Testament. And so he goes over to the east of, of, um, of Jerusalem and he gets in this band of, of pilgrims that are head, heading to Jerusalem. And he gets in there and he gives them all these teachings about the kingdom of God and what it's going to look like and how great is the kingdom of God and does these miracles. And then what does he do right before the Sabbath? He turns aside and he lets this entire band of pilgrims go into Jerusalem. Basically telling everybody, building the excitement that, hey, here's this guy, this guy called Jesus, who's, who's calling about, telling us about the kingdom that's, come, that's going to come. And he comes in perfect fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies, coming from the west into Jerusalem on the day appointed on a donkey to fulfill everything. And he's doing all these things, and these people have no idea what's going on, or they think they do, but they don't. They think it's their, that he's working in a, he's, and he's going to call for this kingdom of their own imagination. And obviously we know the story, and as Phil talked about late, earlier, it was a king, the, this same crowd that thought they knew what God was doing so disillusioned that called for his death just a few days later. But isn't it true that the greatest way in which he's worked is what he did on the cross and in salvation? Romans 8.32 He who did not um, spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also in him graciously give us all things? So the call is not only to these people but to us how has the Lord worked in your life? Is it too boring that I've rescued these people time and time again? Is it too small a thing that I did this, I completely fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies? Is it too small a thing that I died and rose again? We're on the other side of the cross. Is it too small a thing? Have I wearied you? I guess the question for us today is, is there some danger or hardship that maybe the Lord's protected you from? Is there some things that maybe God has worked for good or is working for good for you? How many things has He worked for good or provided or protected you from that maybe you, like the Israelites, don't even know about? I got a phone call a couple weeks ago, and the story was that Jack had fallen off of a bed and gotten stitches. And so he, right on the top of his forehead, got three stitches. But we came to find out that he had actually fallen about six feet <coughs> off of, of a, his brother's bunk bed. And as he fell, he hit a, he hit, hit a, hit a bookshelf and hit, hit his forehead right here and came down and as we, because one of, one of his sisters saw exactly what happened. 
And as we were thinking about it, we the thought came to my mind, it's an incredible mercy and an incredible grace that the, he fell and got stitches because he very likely, very easily could have been paralyzed. Could have, his trajectory was basically for him to fall on his head. How many situations like that, how many different things has the Lord worked in your life? That's just in a physical example, but how many spiritual ways, emotional all these different ways has maybe the Lord worked in your life that He's protected you from, that He's guarded you from, that you don't even know, that I don't even know. And our response is, I'm weary of Him. But then we come to the response of His people. His response, this response, Micah speaks on behalf of the Israelites. And he says this in verse 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? And here they give increasingly greater examples in raising the bar. They say, shall I come before him with burnt offerings or with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the first of my body for the sin of my, offering, or for the sin of my soul? I think the attitude here is kind of one of snootiness or one of, you know, just, hey, we've done all that you've asked, Lord. What more do you want? Do you want maybe some offerings? Maybe thousands of rivers of oil. Is that enough? Oh, I know. What, what, about, what about my first son? Is that going to be enough for you? Maybe I, we've done all these things. Do I need to do more for you? So we come to verse Eight. <clears throat> the Lord speaks and he says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So the first thing to notice about verse 8 is that it's a rebuke to these people. It's striking a blow at their formal external worship. You know, all through their history, ever since the, the, the law was given to them in Leviticus until this time of Micah, all through their times when they followed the Lord and when they didn't follow the Lord, Every, through that entire section of history, they had always maintained some part, part of that external form of worship. But the Lord gives them a rebuke and he says, I'm not interested in that. He's exposing their hypocrisy. and he, see, He's saying, your ceremonies, I mean, you do them over and over and over, but they're relatively easy to produce. You just have to have what I require. You just have to have you know, the oil or the, the, the sheep or the ram or the, the cow. They were willing to give God everything except their heart. So he says, first, if your heart is right, you would do justice, as we'll see that they were not doing. In the Old Testament, uh, justice was what Bruce Waltke, a Reformed uh, scholar says was justice is when you are in a socially superior position and you step in and deliver the oppressed or weaker party from their foe. You know, it wasn't really just, well, there, as you, if you look at justice all through the Old Testament, it's used oftentimes with righteousness. Righteousness is doing that which is right, doing what God commands. But right, justice was something a little bit different than that in the Old Testament. It was not just what it's doing right, what is right, but being proactive and helping 
And as Bruce Walkey says, helping and stepping in to those who are oppressed. Helping out those who are unable to help themselves. Jeremiah 22, here's one example. It says this, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in his place. We also see, not only does he, he pair righteousness and justice, but he also pairs the words justice with the widow, the orphaned, the fatherless, the poor, the weak, the needy. Oftentimes he says, don't pervert their the, the justice of them. Isaiah 1.17 Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct opposition. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. He's saying, do that which is right for those who are in a lesser position. An example that I've, has always stuck with me, there was Tim Keller. Many of you know he's a pastor in Manhattan. And before that, he was a pastor down in Virginia. And one of his one of his uh, one of the individuals at his church owned a car business, a car dealership. And what the man realized is that he always would, you know, haggle with those guys that uh, that came in and were good with, with dealing. And so um, he would, you know, obviously drop the price for those people who were good at uh, and well educated. But it was those that elderly man or that single mother that just didn't have the resources or the time or the, just the savvy to negotiate. And so what was happening was he was making a huge margin on these, these poor and neglected people in the sense that they didn't have the, those abilities. But these other guys who were great wheelers and dealers, he would make a smaller margin. And so what this man did is he said, you know what, it's gonna t- I'm going to take a hit to, because I'm not going to make as much margin over here and I'm going to make less, but I'm just going to do a flat rate for everybody, a set margin so that I'm not taking as much, I'm not taking advantage of those people that are weak or oppressed. I thought that was a great example. You know, but the thing is, it's interesting, he says, do justice. He doesn't say enjoy justice or love justice. He says, do justice. Many times, doing justice is difficult. You may not be thanked for it. It may take time. It may take money. I've heard many stories of those who have adopted children. And it's a hard road, especially the older they get. Many of them coming from difficult situations and difficult home, even the best of foster homes or foster situations. We've had a recent issue, a small, small issue in our family of trying to do justice to others. It's hard, it's difficult. But we're called to do justice to others. <clears throat> Many of you know, I mean, the ideas are endless. There's weak and oppressed and poor and needy around us all over. But many, you know, just a couple examples. Maybe there's somebody, your neighbor, who's elderly, who's maybe part of a, going to be part of a scam or being part of safe homes. There's all sorts of examples that we could point to. But then he says this, love mercy, love kindness, love steadfast love. What greater example is there of Jonah than Jonah? As Steve wrote that book, do you love mercy? You know, Jonah went to the Ninevites and 
after being in the whale, and he, he comes and he proclaims their, the coming doom, and they repent. And instead of loving mercy, instead of loving the, them turning from their, their wicked ways and turning to God, he becomes angry and despondent. Here's an example of what loving mercy does not mean. <clears throat> there, my wife and I have this little hole-in-the-wall Italian place that we go to, and a few months ago we went there, and it's very small. It's only about 10 uh, tables. And so uh, there was the, these three people were sitting right next to us. It was very hard not to listen to them because they were speaking very, very loudly. Uh, I mean, almost just very loudly, and it was hard to even listen to my wife as she was talking. But it became very clear that there was this husband and wife, and then there was this other man, and this husband and wife had a, a child, a son, that had severe disabilities. And so they, were, they needed this man who was a contractor who was going to do some work in their house so that he, this, this son could live on the main floor. And um, again, this was not eavesdropping. People on the other side of the... the the restaurant could hear, and so it was. Just, they were just kind of talking about this, and you know, I, I just said to Maggie, I said, "I'm going to buy their meal." You know, and trust me, this this wasn't an extravagant uh, check. But so I went to our waitress and I paid for the meal, and I was feeling great. And I come back, and not not 30 seconds later, the man, the husband, says, "Well, I don't know what you think about," and he lists this pastor, this this. TV preacher, you know, and I, I don't have a lot of, of a lot, I don't enjoy many TV preachers and him being the foremost. And, um, and he said, but I love him. And the other guy goes, oh, I do too. And they talk for a couple minutes about how much they enjoy this TV preacher. And I looked at Maggie and I said, should I go and talk to the waitress and, and not and take this back? <clears throat> But the Lord was kind of convicting me. And, and I, again, I still feel the very same way about that, path, that preacher. But the point was, I was, at first I was extending that mercy to that man and woman, not because of what they believed. I was just, the, the, there was a mercy that I just wanted to bestow upon them. It had nothing to do with how, what they believed. I, and I was loving that. And then to the point of, I felt that, well, now they haven't done that to earn that. Well, isn't that just how the Lord has been merciful with us? He doesn't say, oh, I'm going to give you this. Oh, no, no, I'm going to take it back. He's given us His Son even while we despised and ridiculed Him, even when we were dead in our sins. That is what loving mercy means. We're called to love mercy. Do you love that kind of mercy that is in many times hard to love? It's a love that's different than justice. And then lastly, we come to walking humbly with your God. He talks of recounting of those faithful acts of the Lord. He doesn't say do more and more and more, but he says walk humbly with your God. He's saying, not walk in your own path. Proverbs speaks twice. It says, the way of, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. 
How do you walk humbly with your Lord? Don't you spend time with Him? Don't you commune with Him? You know, if you are somebody is starting a relationship with somebody else, you when you go and you talk to them, and he says, well, are you walking with them? Are you kind of hanging out with them? Oh, I don't know. I just kind of learn about them once or twice, and I go and I hear somebody talk about that person on Sunday. Well, you're not walking with that person. Are you communing with the Lord? And I think it's important that he, there's a word here that he puts in I'm sure you've noticed it and thought about it before, but he says, humbly. If your heart is not like those Israelites, if your heart is like what God calls, there's no room for pride and for arrogance. You're walking humbly with your Lord, knowing that all he's given, the salvation that he's granted is all of his doing. In fact, the ability to believe in that is all of his doing. There's no part of pride and arrogance in walking in your walk with God. <clears throat> the danger is often things, the idea is we need to do more and more. We need to look better. We, is this good enough? Is this good enough? And the Lord just says, is your heart right with me? And is your heart to love others? Really, I think it's, it's no coincidence that a verse that tries to boil down, that's one of the most famous in, in the Old Testament, is very similar, is basically a rewording of the greatest commandment. Isn't it? It's, what he's saying is love God, love others. In Matthew, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love the Lord your God, your neighbor, or you shall love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> Sorry, I didn't do the kids' notes. For you kids' notes, all right, number one. <laughs> did I give number one? I'm not, not following my, my, did I? Number two, did you guys get number two? Guys, all right. Number three, <clears throat> did we do, what are we on? Number th- Response of God's people, that's number two, right? Number three, God's requirement, everybody... We don't have very many kids today. All right, number four. The response of God's people and his judgment. We see this in verses 10 through 15 especially. It says this, Can I forget any longer the treasures of the wickedness in the house of the wicked, the scant measure of the accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales, the man with a bag of deceitful weights? You aren't being people of justice. You aren't showing mercy to those others. You know, he says, you, it's kind of like the song, you can't have one without the other, but it's loving God and loving others. If you don't love God from the heart, you can't love others. If you don't enjoy His grace first, you can't extend His glory. Do you enjoy His grace? Do you extend His glory? And so we have these sobering words. Here is going to be the prophetic words of Micah. He says in this, in verses 13, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat and not be satisfied, and there shall be a hunger within you. You shall put away and not preserve. What you do preserve, I'll give to the sword. You'll sow and not reap. You'll tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. 
So you'll strive and you'll strive and you'll strive. And it won't build up. I'm going to take, you know, it was, I think it's ironic if you compare those things that the Lord's going to take away, compare those to verses 6 and 7. Where he says, you know, where the people on behalf of Micah are saying, well, maybe I should give you this. What about this? About the oil? What about the, 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 <clears throat> my firstborn? And what about the olives for oil? And he says, you'll strive. You'll eat, but you won't be satisfied. You think you're going to have enough to give me from your external actions? You know what? You are going to keep striving and striving and striving, and it's not going to add up. It's just going to go down and down and down. And he says this. He speaks of Omri and Ahab. You know, Omri was, it's said of this him in 1 Kings 16.25. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. He was more evil than all that list of bad kings. None of them were good. But that only lasted a generation. His son comes, Ahab, and it says, the, uh, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it were a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam and the sons of Nebat, he took his, for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And so because of all these things, it says in verse 16, the last thing, you shall bear the scorn of my people. Oh, my people, oh, my people, how have I wearied you? You haven't obeyed me. You haven't, you've done everything I've asked except from worshiping from the heart. And you haven't followed me. And not only that, you haven't done justice to those who are weak and oppressed. In fact, you have deceitful weights. And so, oh, my people, my people, you will bear the scorn of my people. God's harshest words are often for his people. <clears throat> In the law, he said, if you, he had two, the people stand on two mountains, and he says, if you obey me, here's all these blessings that will happen. You're going to inherit the land. You're going to do well. You're, you will have descendants, and uh, you will be profitable. If you disobey, here's all these cursings. You know, you'll strive and strive and strive, just like the last half of Micah 6. And it came true. And often, it, Jesus continues this in the New Testament and he says his harshest words were for those who were religious leaders. And he said, you whitewashed tombs. You know, it's foolish for us to try to do all these external things. <laughs> Number one, I don't know who is impressed with external church worship. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a, as one, one of my favorite pastors says, it, church is a stupid hobby. I mean, why do you come to church if that's just a hobby? You're not fooling God. It's a foolish thing to try to fool God if you're just coming from an external position. And so God says, you are my people and you will bear the curses of my people. You shall bear the reproach or the scorn of my people. And that's exactly what happened. The Assyrians came and laid waste to the, to the south. End of chapter. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Turn back to Micah or Isaiah. Isaiah 25. And we're done. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 7. It talks about the reproach and the scorn of 
my people, of his people. Talks about another day. <clears throat> Isaiah 25, 6 says this On this mountain, again, a mountain, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of rich wine well refined. He will swallow up on this mountain and the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And then this, and the reproach or the scorn of his people, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that we might, he might save us. This is the Lord we have waited for. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. May we long for that day, that glorious day. If we don't obey from a heart, <clears throat> there will be the scorn and the reproach of his people. But oh, for that day when the, he will swallow up death forever. He will wipe away all the tears and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth. But it is for those that celebration, that celebration, not for those who strove and strove and strove, but it will be for those who will, <clears throat> who, the celebration will not be for those who follow God externally and out of duty, but it will be for those who, like in verse 9, have waited for God and are glad in Him and rejoice in His salvation. And as we see, we can only celebrate and we can only look forward to that day because it was Jesus. Jesus was the one who completed all of Micah 6.8. He obeyed all of God's demands all the way to the cross. He loved God completely and loved others wholly. He was in an infinitely superior position and he came down and he helped those who were weak, the blind, the crippled, the lame, and most importantly, the spiritually dead. He came to help us. And that's what we do for a communion. As we finish up, the communion is a time where we look forward to that day on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all his people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, and of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Let me pray and we'll take part of that taste of the day to come. Lord, you call to us we confess we are like the Israelites in so many ways. Lord, I pray that we would obey out of the heart. That we would love you and love others. That we would walk humbly with you. That we would love your mercy that is incredible. That is beyond comprehension that we would do justice and that we would consider and we would think of all those ways in which you have protected and are working in our lives.
We pray these things in your name. Amen.